You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here, and I'm here in my home in Santa Barbara, California, looking outside, and it's rainy today. And I'm here to do another live question and answer time on a Thursday afternoon. So if you can join me either live now, or if you're catching this later on, on a recorded video or audio podcast or whatever, I'm glad that you could join me. And I hope that maybe there's something in this that's a benefit to you. Uh, I have a verse-by-verse commentary through the entire Bible. Uh, Most people use it at my website, EnduringWord.com, but I also have a lot of people, almost as many, use it uh, on the website, The Blue Letter Bible, which is an amazing Bible resource that I recommend to everybody. So I've been studying and teaching the Bible for uh, most of my life. I love God. I love His Word. I love how God meets us and meets me in His Word. For me, The study of God's word isn't just an academic thing. It's really a place of fellowship that I have with God. And so um, it is. It's a wonderful thing for me to come and to talk to people about God's word. And I'm glad that I can do that today for whatever, how much time we have. So with that being said, uh, let me start off with an opening question for today's Q&A. This is something that I often do is uh, I have a lead question. And this Question comes in. uh, I think it was a comment or a question on the YouTube channel uh, from Davida. And Davida asks this question Will God avenge the millions of abortions in this country? Will God punish Governor Cuomo for signing the Reproductive Health Act? Well, Davida's question is specifically asking about abortion and the abortion laws in the United States and if God would bring judgment to America because of that. And then specifically, she asks about the governor of New York State and the specific uh, law that they passed there, something that they very, I don't terribly call the Reproductive Health Act. Um, it seems very strange to title something Reproductive Health when what it does is it gives an absolute guarantee for any abortion uh, at any stage of pregnancy, absolutely any stage of pregnancy. Um, Anyway, so the the question is, uh, will God avenge the millions of abortions in this country? And let me just kind of broaden that question out just a little bit uh, and just address it under this heading. Is God judging America? Now, This is a question that often gets asked, especially in a season like this. Uh, I'm recording this on April the 9th, I believe it is, right here in the year 2020. And we are in in the midst of a global pandemic. There is a virus spreading around the world uh, called the coronavirus or COVID-19. And this virus is responsible for many thousands of deaths. More than a million people worldwide are infected with the virus, and uh, it's a scary time. 
because not only is it true for those who are sick or have died or are suffering directly because of the virus, but there's been a massive change in the society to try to prevent the spread of the virus. So in many places in America, uh, people are in what's called lockdown, where you're not supposed to leave your house except for necessary things. Uh, there's a huge effect of this, of course, upon the economy uh, and on and on and on. And it's logical for somebody to look at this and say, is this the judgment of God upon America? And would it have anything to do with the millions of abortions that have been permitted in this country? Uh, and even for the very extreme abortions, this is one thing I want you to understand about abortion laws in the United States of America. They are, globally speaking, incredibly extreme. There are very few, for example, European countries that have absolutely no restrictions for abortions the way that the United States does. Okay, But that's another matter. What we're really concerning ourselves with is this direct question, is God judging America? And let me give you, I think I came up with seven or eight principles regarding the judgment of God. And so let, let's just talk about those. Okay, first of all, number one, God has the right to judge individuals, communities, nations, whatever. God has the right. This is the right of God to do this. And, and anybody who would stand in judgment of God, claiming that he does not have the right to judge, in my mind, that person is exalting themselves as God. Brothers and sisters, God has the right to judge. If God will not judge, then who else will? So God has the right to judge. He has the right to judge individuals. He has the right to judge communities. He has the right to judge nations. I consider what it says in John chapter 5, verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Those are the words of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ said to all of humanity that God the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son. Matter of fact, if you want a dramatic example of this, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32, it speaks of how Jesus Christ will judge all the nations. Now, now think about that. That is an astounding thing for a man to say about himself. <laughs> for a man to say, the whole world will answer to me in judgment. But that's exactly what Jesus said. He said it in John chapter 5, verse 22. He said it in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. No, make no mistake about it. God has the right to judge. And Jesus Christ says that he will judge. Okay, so that's to begin with. That's the first principle. Number two, when God brings judgment against a community or a nation, there are some who are relatively innocent who will suffer under that judgment. Again, let me say that again. Here's a second principle. When God brings judgment against a community or a nation, there are some who are relatively innocent who will suffer under that judgment. Um, when God brought judgment upon the cities of, oh, let's just say Sodom and Gomorrah, 
surely, and I know this will offend some people, but we just have to speak honestly. I'm trying to speak to you just as, as a man who has read and I believe understands the relatively innocent. They were not directly involved in the crimes that made the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah so ripe for judgment. But this is a simple principle of judgment. It is rare when God judges a community or a nation, but only judges, only has judgment against those individuals who have specifically sinned in such a way. You see, because then it's not a community or a national judgment, then it's an individual judgment. And if you think that's not fair, then basically what you're saying is that God has no right to judge a community. God has no right to judge a nation. So it doesn't matter how wicked a nation becomes. It doesn't matter how much evil they may do in the world. You're saying God has no right to bring judgment against them because when God does bring judgment against a community or a nation, there are some who are relatively innocent who will suffer under that judgment. Number three, here's the third principle. It is often very difficult to tell if a particular event or series of events are the judgment of God when the events happen. But because there are things that also happen simply because we live in a fallen world and without an obvious meaning from God's hand. Now, I'm not trying to say that these things happen outside of God's control. No, we're not talking about that. Listen, everything that happens in the world happens either because God directly caused it or because God has allowed it and it happens by a secondary cause. That's just patently true. But let's understand, it's often very difficult to tell if a particular event or series of events are the judgment of God when the events happen. That's why I sometimes don't know what to think when when a tornado happens somewhere in the world, somewhere in America, it seems like there's a lot of tornadoes in the Midwest. A tornado happens and some television preacher confidently announces, well, that was the judgment of God. Listen, how, how do we know? How do you know? It, it, it certainly happened uh, with God's allowance. We're not trying to say that it didn't. But to say that a particular event or series of events are the direct judgment of God, it's often very difficult to say that when the events happen. Most of the time, if we know it's the judgment of God, we know it afterwards. We know it in retrospect. We know it as things work out. And so we need to be careful about this because here's the fourth principle. It is cruel to say a terrible event is due to the judgment of God when it is not. Now, for an example of that, I use the example of Job in the Old Testament. You know, Job's friends were convinced they knew why all the calamity came upon Job. And I'm not going to get into what Job's calamity was, but it was terrible. Let's just say that. Terrible things came into the life of Job. Death deprivation, illness, all the rest of it, it all came crashing down upon this man, Job. Now, Job's friends came to him 
And initially, they just sat beside him and loved him and were with him in the terrible moment. God bless them for that. But when they began to speak, their basic approach was this, Job, we all know why these terrible events have happened to you. They have happened to you because God is judging you. God is correcting you because of some sin in your life. You need to listen to and respond to the judgment of God. Let me tell you, Job's friends were wrong. And at the end, God rebuked Job's friends and God called them miserable comfort. Well, maybe it was Job. That said, but they are called in the book of Job, miserable comforters. And that's what they were. Brothers and sisters, it is cruel to say that a terrible event or series of events are due to the judgment of God when they are not. So we need to be slow about this. Let's not put ourselves in the place of Job's friends where we feel like, well, we could just come, oh, this is the judgment of God and we know this. And Listen, we need to be humble about our ability to perceive these things. So God certainly has the right to judge. We're not claiming that he doesn't. But it's often very hard for us to perceive in any different, definite way what are the judgments of God, especially when they happen. All right, let me give you a few more principles of God's judgment. This is number five. God will use strange things as the instrument of his judgment. Don't forget that. It's fully within the pattern and the, the, the outworking of God's plan to use strange things. Habakkuk shows us, well, this is in much of the Old Testament, but Habakkuk is one great example of that. This prophet, he had a very hard time understanding why God would use a even more wicked nation to judge his wicked people. Habakkuk realized the people of God, the kingdom of Judah, were wicked. He understood that. But it was strange to him that God would use an even more wicked, I don't know if it's the right word, the, a wickeder nation. I know that's not a word, but you understand what I mean. That God would use the Babylonians to bring judgment upon the people of God. God may use strange things as the instrument of his judgment. Number six, the judgments of God are settled in eternity not necessarily in this life. Let's please remember that, brothers and sisters. The judgments of God are settled in eternity. We will not see everything set right on this side of eternity. There's a great psalm, I think it's Psalm 73, where David is in great difficulty. Actually, I think it's one of the sons of Asaph, Psalm 73. Let me see if I could just turn to it quickly here. Um, yeah, it's one of the Psalms of Asaph where he, he says how how plagued he was, how how disturbed he was over the prosperity of the wicked and, and just what a difficult thing that was for him to accept until he went to the house of God and understood things in light of eternity. The judgments of God are settled in eternity. Now, let, let me bring back to the original question that Davida asked. Uh, will God judge America? L let me say this. Yes, God will judge America for our sin of abortion. Absolutely. Will. The, the unbelievably um, unrestricted, absolutely unrestricted, no regulation whatsoever of the abortion industry. The, the, all of it, all of it is just a, a stench before God. 
God will judge America. Now, will that judgment come now? Will it come in eternity? We, we don't necessarily know. The judgments of God are settled in eternity, not necessarily in this life. Okay, two more quick principles. Um, number seven, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. We love the rhetorical question that Abraham asked of God when God was informing Abraham about his plan to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. Abraham turned to the Lord and he said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now that question is what we call a rhetorical question. What does a rhetorical question mean? It means a question where the answer is assumed. And the assumed answer of that is absolutely the judge of all the earth will do right. Of course he will. God is the judge of all the earth and he will do what is right. At the end of it all, in ways that we can't perceive, when whatever judgment God portions out in this world, in this life, and in the next, at the end of it all, we are all going to say, both heaven and everyone in hell will say, the judge of all the earth did right. The judgments of God are perfect and pure. Okay, those are seven principles of judgment. I'm going to add one more. And by the way, I'll copy this list and put it in the description uh, so that you just have this list of eight principles of the judgment of God. And if you have one you want to suggest that you want to add to my eight principles, go right ahead. I'm not trying to pretend that this is an absolutely exhaustive list of the principles of God's judgment. But here's an eighth one. Ready? Judgment begins at the house of God. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now, in context, it's the world because he has begun at the house of God. But that's what we, too often Christians, we're in a posture that just kind of says, yeah, God, get them, judge them, look at all the wickedness. And there's a place for that. L listen, I, I'm studying a lot in the Psalms right now. And the Psalms are filled with people, the Psalms are filled with the cry, I should say, of people who want to see God set things right, who want to see God judge the wicked and reward the righteous. And there's nothing wrong with this longing to see God set things right. That's fine. But whenever we think that way in regard to a corrupt world around us, let us never forget as believers that the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. If we want God to bring his judgment to the world in general, to America, to a community, we need to first say, Lord, you clean our house first. Lord, you purify us as a church, us as a community of the people of God, us as the body of Christ. Lord, let judgment begin at the house of God. And honestly, that's a hard thing to say. Because usually we want to consider judgment as just something God's going to do to someone else. But do we really invite God to come in and clean house in our midst? So let me get back to the original question. Will God judge America? Now, I said he would previously, but let me qualify that just a little bit. Maybe we will repent. Maybe we will. When you go through the Old Testament, there's many places where God had designed and destined and sometimes even announced judgment 
And then people repented and God relented from that judgment. Let's never forget the great generosity and long-suffering and love that there is within the heart of God. So maybe there will be repentance on the part of America. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? A true repentance in our land. God announced judgment against Nineveh, but then God relented when they repented. This could happen. Let's pray for it to happen. And when we pray for it to happen, let's pray with an open heart that says, Lord, begin your judgment among your people. So maybe America will repent. Maybe judgment will come. I think it was Billy Graham. I've never read this quote. I've just heard it repeated. But I think it was Billy Graham who said, if God does not judge America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Well, that's kind of a vivid statement, uh, a preaching kind of statement, but there's some truth in it, brothers and sisters. We need to come back and say, um, Lord, have mercy on us as a land. Lord, we repent of our sins as a people. And, and we need to pray that God will show mercy in the midst of wrath. I love that phrase in the Psalms, or maybe it's in one of the minor prophets, where he says, Lord, um, in wrath, remember mercy. And that's our real hope. So that's an answer. Is God judging America? I, I don't see so in the present moment. I don't have enough information to say this coronavirus, this COVID-19, that this is the judgment of God in America. And I'll give you one reason why is because, um, number one, uh, this coronavirus is doing destruction so globally that it seems strange to restrict it as being a expression of God's judgment upon any particular place, any particular country. It's too global. But is there something of God's judgment in this for us to, to see, to learn from, to repent of? Perhaps. Let's pay attention and stay very, very close to God and pray that God would grant America and, and whatever nation, I, one of the great things I love about this, we, we've got viewers and listeners all over the world, uh, South Africa, Italy, Spain, Germany, the UK, Australia. We love it. Listen, you, you need to consider that for yourself and your country, whom you love. I, I hope you love your country wherever you live in the world. God wants us to love our communities. Listen, pray that God would grant within your nation a great spirit of repentance that God, even in his wrath, would remember mercy. So that's what I have to say. Let's take a look over at the chat window and uh, just kind of address some of these questions here. Uh, Jeremy says, Blue Letter Bible is where I found your commentaries. Awesome. Yes, Jeremy, I just want to remind everybody of a tremendous resource that we have, the Blue Letter Bible. And I, I want to as much as I can say, say thank you to the people at Blue Letter Bible. In 1996, they put, I still don't understand why they did it, but they put my Bible study notes up on their website, and that was the first exposure that my Bible commentary had anywhere in the world. And um, I love the folks at Blue Letter Bible. They're doing such a great work. You can get my verse-by-verse -verse commentary through the entire Bible there at Blue Letter Bible or also at my own website, EnduringWord.com. 
But let me tell you something. Blue Letter Bible is a remarkable Bible resource uh, that is, is so extensive in the variety of Bible translations, the amazing number of Bible commentators, the audio and video you can get there, and its Greek and Hebrew tools are first class. It's like having a very expensive Bible software platform, absolutely free. BLB.org is how you can get there. I'm looking up to the side here. Here's uh, a blue letter Bible cup. So anyway, this is a great, great ministry. I love the guys at Blue Letter Bible. Sean says, hi, pastor. In chapter 24 of Matthew, where Jesus speaks of two men working in a field and one is taken, is about is that about the rapture or about something else? Okay, Sean's referring to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus speaks of this thing. That there'll be two people in a field and one will be taken and the other will be left. Sean, most dispensational, um, premillennial uh, Bible interpreters look at that and say it's relevant to the millennium, not to the rapture. That when they talk about one being taken, uh, I think they say it's being taken in judgment. And the, the one who would be remain would be the one who would go and inherit the millennial earth. Sean, I got to say, I'm in the minority on that. I see it as a reference to the rapture. And I think one of the things that kind of trips people up there is so often we read the Bible with a very Western mindset. And our Western mindset puts a very high priority on a strict sequential chronology when we tell a story. It's like in the West, th this is inherited from the Greeks. It's inherited from the Romans. It, it, it's all that. There's a way to tell a story, and this is how you tell it. You start at the beginning and you end at the end, and you click your boxes chronologically. In the ancient Middle East and in that whole region, uh, the world of the Bible, that just wasn't so important to them. And so they would tell a story, uh, go from beginning to end, then they go back and fill in details along the way. So um, I look at that Matthew 24 passage, and Sean, I, I don't know what your stand is on it, but I think I, I see the rapture there. I see the catching away of the church described in 1 Thessalonians. So uh, that's just how I see it. I, I think I'm in the minority view uh, on that, but again, that's how I understand it. Um, you say, Sean, since Jesus doesn't bring up the rapture until John 14, well, again, Sean, again, I'm not looking at chronology or the way that lays it out. Um, okay, anyway, let me go on. Uh, Pierce says, uh, saludos desde Argentina. Yes, hello, greetings to my uh, Latin America, uh, South America, Mexico, Central America, all over the Latin American speaking world. God bless my friends in Brazil. Uh, listen, I, I'm excited about what God's doing all over the world, and I'm very pleased that you could join. Uh, Ant says, hello, David. God bless you. I want to know if there's a way I could defend my views on anti-abortion using the Bible. Well, Ant, there's a lot of great resources online, no doubt, 
But one of the best resources I found is just in the Psalms. I'm trying to remember the specific Psalm number. What is it? I think it's Psalm 132. Let me see if I can turn there. Psalm 132, no, that's not it, um, where it says, where can I go from your presence? Uh, how come I forget? Is that earlier in the Psalms? Anyway, the simple truth in the Psalms points out for us is that God knows us even in the womb. Sorry to lick my fingers. That's a very unplague time thing to do. Uh, but I will immediately wash my hands afterwards. I want you to know. Um, again, this idea, it's in Psalm 139, where it just simply says this, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And, and, and then it goes into verse 13. For you have formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The simple idea here communicated in Psalm 139 is this. God knows us even in the womb. God knows us even in the womb. When does God's knowledge of a person begin? It begins when they're in the womb. And so God knows us, even though I think that's reflected there in Psalm 139. Um, but, you know, there's another great passage and that just says, um, do not murder. The command in the Ten Commandments, do not murder is a command against abortion. That we, we should not take life except by the due process of law or in self-defense. That's it. So anyway, let me go on. Um, Brecke says, Brecke Woodworking. Hi, my name is Scott. Okay, Scott, how do you know if you have the gift of healing? I prayed for some blind girls last year and they weren't healed. Did I not have the gift or was it not God's timing then? Scott, I think it's very important to understand what the gift of healing is and is not. The gift of healing is not the ability to heal anyone and everyone whenever we please. I want you to understand, the gift of healing did not even operate that way in Jesus himself. And let me explain. Jesus said this. He said, I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. Every person that Jesus healed, he did because he knew from God the Father that God wanted him to heal that person. It wasn't because Jesus in himself, apart from his vital relationship with God the Father, it wasn't that Jesus in isolation just to say, well, I want to heal them, I want to heal them. There are some people who seem to believe that if someone has the gift of healing, they can just kind of like shoot healing beams out of their fingertips and heal whoever they focus those healing beams upon. Listen, that is a bizarre, superstitious, even occultic way to think of the gift of healing. I don't think of people having the gift of healing in residence, so to speak. Now, maybe God may use the prayers and the love of a person more often in a healing work than somebody else. 
but I don't think we should look for this power, this ability that whomever we touch, whomever we lay a hand upon, uh, whoever we pray for, that absolutely all of them get prayed. If someone did have that gift, honestly, then they should go to the hospitals around this country and around this world and start cleaning them out. But, but I don't believe the gift of healing worked that way in Bible times. I don't think it worked that way then. I know it doesn't work that way now. And so the gift of healing is not something that operates independently of God's specific direction in the moment. So I would just say, Scott, don't look to possess the gift of healing, but look to be led by the Holy Spirit. And if God leads you to pray for people, to lay hands upon them that they would be healed, pray in faith and just trust that God will do his wonderful works in and through what you do. Seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. But nobody has this mechanistic power where they can just walk through and heal people. Boom, you're healed, boom. Despite what we see with some flamboyant evangelists, it just doesn't work that way. And to claim that it does is a deception. Okay, let me continue on here. Darren says, are all governors local, state, federal, ordained by God? Well, Darren, yes. I mean, that's what it says in Romans chapter 13. And when Paul wrote that in Romans chapter 13, he wrote it of a government that was very much against Christianity and Christians. I mean, remember what it says there in Romans 13. I'm looking to another Bible, one that maybe the pages would be a little bit easier to turn. Romans chapter 13, let me just read that. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, let me just say this. Those authorities may be appointed by God for the blessing of his people, or they may be appointed by God for the judgment of a nation or a state or a city, and even for cleansing among the people of God. God may appoint a leader who is an expression of his judgment against a society. And so, yes, we believe that people don't get into office unless God is behind it. But whether God means that person to be in office as a blessing or as, in some sense, a judging or a correction, oftentimes we don't know until we see uh, what happens in and through that person. Um, Zach says, hello, Pastor David. In your opinion, to what extent should we consider church history in interpreting the Bible? Well, Zach, that is a tremendous question. And um, to what extent should we consider church history in interpreting the Bible? Well, it's good if you're going to be a serious Bible um, teacher, preacher, to understand at least in general terms, how Christians through the centuries have, have interpreted and applied the Bible, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. So it's good for us to have a knowledge of those things, and it's good and important for us to be respectful of uh, how Christians in other times, in other places, in other generations have understood and received biblical truth. Uh, I love the study of history. I'm looking around here. 
if I were to recommend historical books to you, it's big. It's in two volumes, but probably the very best history of Christianity that I've ever read is by Kenneth Scott Latourette. It's in two volumes. Man, this is a great history of Christianity. Uh, so I think it's good for us to know, but we should not have a slavish submission to the opinions of man, whether they be present or historical. If the church has understood something from the scriptures or most of the church a certain way, I don't feel obliged to say, well, that must be what it is. But if I'm going to disagree with it, I need to feel that I have really good biblical grounds for doing so. I want to be respectful of what Christians in the past have understood without necessarily being a slavish um, submit, one who submits to those opinions. So understand. the big thing I want to do is understand. If they understood this in a certain way that I disagree with, well, why did they understand it that way? What are the things leading up to it? And why do I disagree with them? And try to get to things at a root level. So I would just define it as that. We as believers, in trying to understand the Bible and trying to understand Christian doctrine, we should be respectful of what God, um, what God's people in past generations have taught and believed. But we, we don't necessarily need to be slavish at all in our adoption of those. Look, the bottom line is this, is that the Bible is our rule. The Bible is our measure. And we think it's valuable to understand how Christians in previous generations, we can learn a lot from them, but we don't have a slavish surrender to their opinions. I hope that helps you there, Zach. Luciana says, hi, Pastor David, what are your top three books to read while self-quarantined? <laughs> Luciana, that's a great question. Listen, why not get a little ambitious and read something big? You might be self-quarantined for a while. Why not read Kenneth Scott Latourette's excellent A History of Christianity in two volumes? Let me look back on my shelf and look for another couple books. Okay, this is an old edition of a great book, but this book called The Jesus Style by my friend Gail Irwin. This is a tremendous book that'll teach you a lot about who Jesus is and what he came to do and how we should understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me just pick one more book off the back shelf here. Um, okay, I'll do it. I love this book by J. Edwin Orr, Full Surrender. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. Uh, it's a great little book. Uh, it's just a wonderfully devotional book. A, a friend of mine said that reading this book was like going to a spiritual chiropractor. <laughs> just puts everything in alignment. And uh, I just, I, I highly recommend this book. So those are just three quick ones that come to mind, Luciana. Uh, two of them fairly small, one of them big in two volumes. But I think that might be a help, a blessing to you. Uh, a witness for Jesus. Hi, David. In your recent message on John chapter 10, you said that Roman Catholics are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Doesn't the Catholic Church believe in a false gospel, a gospel of works? Okay, witness for Jesus. Let me say this. And I'm glad to clarify this because um, I can't remember exactly what I said in this video. 
so let me tell you what, what I would intend. And if somebody were asked that question, I'll answer your question directly. It's very important for us to understand that salvation or damnation is not a matter of what group you belong to. Can we agree on that? It's not like you can say, oh, Lord, I belong to this group. I'm going to heaven. No, it doesn't work like that. You, you can't say, I belong to this church, right on church, fantastic church. Wow, they love the Lord. Lord, I'm a member. I'm a regular attender of that church. I must be going to heaven. No. The true, the same is also true when it comes to damnation. Nobody's going to go to hell just because that person belongs to what we might call the wrong group. This is what matters. Every individual's personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I don't have any doubt that there are born-again believers in Jesus Christ who attend and who are part of the Roman Catholic Church. How many? What proportion? I can't tell you. But for sure. And those people who are, they are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. But we've got to get out of this thinking that says that either heaven or hell is a matter of belonging to the right group or not belonging to the wrong group. So when we get to heaven, you know, we there's this fanciful, it's, it's an illusion, but let's just use it for the sake of illustration. You go to heaven and it's coming in or out and you're getting checked at the gate. You're not going to say, uh, well, look, it's because I went to Calvary Chapel. You're going to let me in, right? No. Getting to heaven isn't a matter of what group you belong to, but neither is going to hell. It's based on each individual's personal acceptance or rejecting of Jesus Christ. And it's possible for there to be unsaved people within the best church or denomination or collection of churches or associated churches. It's possible for there to be unsaved people, people who are destined for hell, even within the best group. And, and it is possible for there to be saved people, even in the midst of those who are, um, have a lot of false doctrines and have a lot of problems with that. So let's just, we're going to take off the table, the idea, the thinking that heaven or hell de depends on what group you belong to. And we're going to look to it to be each individual. And based on that, I don't have any problem saying that there are brothers and sisters in Christ among Roman Catholics. I, I don't have any problem saying that. What proportion, how many, are they few proportionally? Are they many proportionally? Look, I don't even know. That, that's a whole nother question entirely. Okay, I hope that answers that for you, a witness for Jesus. Jennifer says, and I think I'm only going to take a few more questions. Oh, there's a lot of questions here, but I just can't get to all of them. So I'm trying to do the best I can. Wow, lots of great questions here, but I just can't take them all. I've been already recording a lot of videos today, and I don't know how much more voice I have. Okay, Jennifer asks this. Blessings, Pastor. In the desert, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy. You shall not test the Lord your God. So why was Gideon allowed to test him? Okay, Jennifer, that's a great question. I would say this. Maybe somebody else has a different take on this. Jennifer, you're asking me, so I'm going to give you my opinion. I don't think Gideon was right in asking God for the tests that he asked God for. 
And so God, it wasn't right for Gideon to do that. Then the question is, well, then why did God accommodate him? Because sometimes God accommodates us even when we're wrong. And that God was being merciful to Gideon. God was showing extra generosity to a man who was weak in his faith. God was building that man's faith. And uh, Gideon should not ideally have tested God the way that he did, but he did. And God said, no, I'm still going to use this guy, even though I wish he wouldn't test me in this way. So I, I hope that's a clear enough answer there for you, Jennifer. Daniel says, great to hear you again. With Easter around the car corner, what did Christ accomplish in the Garden of Gethsemane? Or what significance did it have? Daniel, that's a great question. The Garden of Gethsemane was just another necessary step that Jesus made in the whole redemption of mankind. You could say that his sufferings for sin began at the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is there in the garden, agonizing, pouring out his soul, sweating as it were great drops of blood, when Jesus is doing all of that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is suffering in the innermost parts of his soul right along with sinful humanity. It gives him the empathy. It gives him the, the sympathy that he needs to come alongside believers in their own time of need. Oh, it was very necessary. But there was also a sense in which, and I need to be very careful in the way that I speak about this, but there was a sense in which at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was irrevocably unchangeably set upon the path to the cross. Now, I feel hesitant in saying that because there is another sense in which it is true that this was Jesus's course unchangeably from the beginnings of time. We remember that it says that he was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. So there is that very real sense that it was always the unchangeable purpose of God and his son to accomplish this, yet, at least in the way that the Garden of Gethsemane is presented to us, there was something decisive that happened there. There was something that happened where God the Son said, this is my course, I will follow it, there's no turning back. Now, I understand, well, there was never any, okay, I get all that, but you can't deny that that flavor is given in some aspect to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a holy place. That place where Jesus knelt and prayed and struggled with God and surrendered and was arrested on the night before his death. All right, seriously now, just a couple more questions I will save the questions that have come in afterwards and we'll, we'll consider them for future Q&As, but my voice is beginning to fade a little bit. Jose says here, many Christians believe that because they have believed in Christ and stand in grace, they don't repent of their sins. What are your thoughts? Oh, Jose, let me say, repentance is very important. Repentance is 
the um, flip side of faith. It's like a coin. You got heads and tails to a coin. Well, it's the same coin, just with two sides. There's a very real sense in which repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. If someone truly has faith, they will repent. If someone truly repents, they will have faith. So to try to separate faith and repentance is doing damage to both of them. True faith will believe what God says about my condition and act accordingly. That's repentance. True repentance will turn around, do a 180-degree turn, and will put the focus upon the Lord himself, and that's trusting in God. So actually, Jose, we need to see that faith and repentance are linked together, unbreakably so, true faith and true repentance. They are two sides of the same coin, and each of them are important in expressions. You could say this that faith and repentance both describe what it is to turn to God. Now, if I'm walking down a path and it's a bad path and I'm walking in a sinful direction, I can't start walking towards God, that's faith, unless I first turn around, that's repentance. Both of them are linked together. So, Jose, I just want to encourage you and everybody who listens to this, Faith and repentance are very, very important. Okay, I'm going to break it off here. We're almost at the 50-minute mark. I want you to know that I'm going to record, I'll copy these questions. Maybe I'll get to them in an additional Q&A. I'm so grateful for everybody who types in a question. I'm grateful for everybody who, I don't know, likes the video, subscribes, all the rest of it. You know, we talk about that all the time. But listen, I just want you to know that I have a completely free commentary on the entire Bible that is available for you at EnduringWord.com. And please remember to pray for the success and the reach of our new dedicated Arabic website, Arabic.EnduringWord.com. If you know Arabic-speaking believers, if you have people who are serving as missionaries in Arabic-speaking nations, would you please send them the link, arabic.enduringword.com, and tell them it's a completely free Bible resource. It's a verse-by-verse commentary through the entire New Testament. Actually, we don't have every book in the New Testament, but it's on the way. It's there. It's a valuable resource. Please, we want this to be a true gift to our beloved brothers and sisters in the Arabic-speaking world. And we just want to keep reaching as many in the name of Jesus as we can. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for your prayers. God bless you. And I'll see you again on our next live stream next Monday. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.